Good morning, and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we welcome persons of all religions, ethnicities, and racial origins, sexual orientations, abilities, and any other circumstances. We extend a special welcome to any visitors who may be attending or visiting us for the very first time. We're glad you're here, and we invite you to enjoy stimulating coffee, conversation, and fellowship after the service, which is in House and Hall, out the door and to your right. Will you join me in lighting our chalice, with the words of which are in your order of service? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship this morning was written by Albert Einstein. The most beautiful emotion we can experience is the mystical. It is the power of all true art and science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. To know that what is impenetrable to us really exists, manifesting itself as the highest wisdom and the most radiant beauty, which our dull faculties can comprehend only in their most primitive forms, this knowledge, this feeling, is at the center of true religiousness. We are a diverse spiritual community and a delightful spiritual community coming from a lot of different traditions. And this congregation has a mission, which I'd like for you to join in me in reading. It's right up here on our wall. We gather in community to nourish souls transform lives, and do justice. I have three short readings for our meditation this morning. The first by Steven Weinberg, Nobel Laureate in Physics and an Austinite. Physical science has historically progressed not only by finding precise explanations of natural phenomena, but also by discovering what sorts of things can be precisely explained. These may be fewer than we had thought. The next, Al Gore in 2008. If you're a young person looking at the future of this planet and looking at what is being done right now and not done, I believe we have reached the stage where it is time for civil disobedience. And finally, Sharon Welch, UU theologian and provost at Meadville Lombard. Responsible action does not mean the certain achievement of desired ends, but the creation of the conditions of possibility 
for desired changes. What improbable task with which unpredictable results shall we undertake today? So, you all know our esteemed intern minister here, Susan Yarbrough, right? Do you? And you also probably know that when she gives a sermon, often on a major holiday like 4th of July this year, she never fails to declare not only that it is a seminarian Sunday, but that they have brought out the B team. So I am going to declare this a pre-seminarian Sunday. And I want to acknowledge the stark reality that if Susan is the B team, then I'd be lucky to be considered the C, D, or E team. So, it's a dour question. Shall we pave the road to hell? That is my question today. Hopefully it brings to mind for you the popular maxim, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. This, of course, is the observation that the world is a far more complicated place than we generally imagine, and that a lot of the bad stuff that's done in this world is done with the hope of improving it. Examples litter our lives. In fact, just the other day, I had a moth breakout at home, and I'm obsessed with woolen items. And at a complete loss of how to protect my favorite sweater, I read that I could put it in the freezer while I went out of town and that that would kill the wool moths. So I did. And when I returned, somehow my precious sweater had been pulled through the ice maker. (laughs) Not only could I not extract it without cutting the sweater, but I broke the ice maker. (laughs) Other examples, a little less funny, are still very familiar to us. And today we burn fossil fuels to enable development that is supposed to increase people's standards of living but that same energy ends up trapping heat in our atmosphere. And now we're, now we're teetering on the edge of using very novel climate technologies called geoengineering in emergency efforts, but these technologies may likely have even more disastrous consequences. So we must underscore the amount of ignorance that we confront whenever we try to do anything. The photo on the cover of our order of service today is of a courageous group of citizens putting themselves in front of bulldozers to protect Utah lands from a Canadian firm that the U.S. has recently permitted to extract tar sands from eastern Utah. And yes, we are indeed literally paving ourselves with fossil fuels into the only type of hell that I've ever been aware of, one here on Earth. We just finished another record-breaking June, which followed 13 months that each broke their respective month's record. It won't stop. We're drenched in oil. Our our entire socioeconomic system is built on it. We are heating our earth at a rate of 250 trillion joules per second, which is meaningless to me. But I read it's equivalent to exploding 400,000 Hiroshima bombs a day, 365 days a year. And in May, in Karachi, Pakistan, the Pakistani government began digging anticipatory mass graves to prepare for the deaths that they expect from this summer's heat wave. We face incredible anxiety when we contemplate taking moral actions to confront climate change or the seemingly impervious reality of our our warming globe. And no matter which actions we're considering, we confront different types of despair that are commonplace in our society. There's that we've just touched on, the fear of acting because you may make things worse. 
which actually underlies the precautionary principle. Another is what I'll call existentialist despair, the near certainty that no matter what, well, all of humanity is one day destined for extinction, for if nothing else, the sun will probably explode in a few billion years. And, that, and this is what Bertrand Russell called unyielding despair. And then there is a kind of despair which is so common that I think I confront it in myself and others almost every day. This is perfectionist despair. That dread voice in our minds that dictates that unless we do something perfectly, there is no point in doing it at all. In the case of climate change and reducing carbon emissions, I can't simply make a choice to do some action that seems good for the climate because unless I stop eating animals or stop driving a car or stop eating dairy, or decide not to have children, or at least raise them as vegans, it just keeps going. But regardless of which type of despair you do battle with when you think of doing something inspired, and which type you lose your battle to, let's face it, all forms of despair are forms of justification for inaction. And at times they feel really good. Despair lifts the burden of hope off our shoulders, and what a burden that is. Despair frees us to worry about nobody, including ourselves. Now, UU theologian Sharon Welch, in her book, A Feminist Ethic of Risk, talks about how we can tackle these anxieties by working toward what she calls, quote, the creation of the conditions of possibility for desired changes. But what are these conditions of possibility? For Welch, they are formed when we act in communities, which she believes tend to hedge against bad ideas and actions. But more importantly, they have much greater resilience in the face of failure than individuals do. I agree with Welch completely on that. But there is an individual step that must occur, at least in our society, before we build active communities. This is especially true in our increasingly more isolated and isolating culture. We each individually must decide to join a community before we can actually act as one. And this individual and radical decision to participate with others in inspired moral action, for me, well, this is where the magic is. I don't really feel like I understand how this happens very well at all, but for me, the critical move begins by acknowledging our ignorance in the face of our uncertainty. In his introductory essay to the new Norton World Anthology of World Religions, Jack Miles, who you all may know as the person who wrote God, a biography, states that, quote, the discovery of ignorance may have been the greatest human discovery of all time. As he puts it, until our prehistoric but anatomically modern ancestors could tell the difference between ignorance and knowledge, how could they actually knew, know they knew anything? Miles continues by noting that religions throughout time can be considered not as privileged forms of knowledge, as is commonly thought, but as ritualized confessions of ignorance. Seeing religion in this way is, he writes, easily overlooked, for the world harbors many a quiet believer and many a shy practitioner reluctant to undergo cross-examination about a confession of inadequacy that defies ready articulation. A confession of inadequacy that defies ready articulation. Don't we all have that? Indeed, I feel that this is the heart at the heart of the religions the world over, and I feel that this is at the heart of inspired moral action. My ignorance is why I consider myself an agnostic. I cannot make a special claim to religious knowledge, either affirming or disaffirming deities. I can, however, confess my inadequacy communally, ritualistically. 
I believe that science is a profoundly deep method for doing this. Indeed, I actually believe that science is a form of religion. Science inquires passionately into the nature of reality and confesses a great deal of ignorance, loving the questions it asks so much that it discovers kernels of reality along the way. Things literally become real through the scientific process. To me, it's much like the story of the Velveteen Rabbit, as that wonderful straw-filled toy becomes real through the tried and true love of a boy at play. Knowledge is revealed to us by the scientific community's persistent and rigorous inquiry into ignorance by the testing of our world. In this sense, science is a real form of intense love. And one of the great misconceptions of science is that scientists are perfectly dispassionate and rational actors. Quite the opposite, they love mystery as much or more than any religious actor and pursue their passions with irrational love and intensity. And thank the Dickens they do for, such, for through such passionate, passionate exploration comes most of the knowledge that we have to work with in our daily lives, not just in our daily hum and drum, but as we confront, confront realities like climate change. As we just heard in the readings, true science does a great job of acknowledging ignorance. Even Steven Weinberg, our local Austinite Nobel laureate in physics, as we just heard, wrote that fewer natural phenomena can be precisely explained than physicists originally thought. That was in 2013. And as Jack Miles puts it, quote, scientific progress is like mountain climbing. The higher you climb, the more you know, but the wider the vistas of ignorance that extend on all sides. The result is that our ignorance always exceeds our knowledge, and the gap between the two grows infinitely greater, not smaller, as infinite time passes. Indeed, after so much physical inquiry, when we fit our mathematical formulas to find out that more than 90% of the mass in our universe is what we call dark matter and is completely undetectable, our universe becomes a completely new mystery to us, and so do our lives within it. The worst part is that we cannot even admit it. We are an arrogant species. And the last thing we want to do is let go of our fundamentalist beliefs. And we all have them, whether they are quote-unquote religious or quote-unquote scientific. The last thing we wish to do is admit how little we know. The notion of ignorance has indeed taken on a very unique and complicated valence when it comes to climate change. This is because instead of acknowledging ignorance, many people today actually celebrate it, especially here. These days, there are very few scientists that deny human-caused climate change, and those that that do are paid handsomely to do so, as historian Naomi Oreskes makes very clear in her book, Merchants of Doubt. But to my mind, the critical reason we must acknowledge our ignorance is because it enables us to recognize what we actually do know. I don't know what God is, or who he, she, they, or it isn't, or is. I do not know what dark matter is, or whether what lays beyond our universe are parallel universes through infinite space. Just as I don't know how to speak the Basque language, or even French, or any other language other than English and Spanish. I don't know the mystery of the world, and it does actually terrify me. But I do know that I'm alive. And in the same instant where I recognize my vitality, I also recognize that I am simultaneously very grateful for my life. 
And this, to me, is the essential recognition. Gratitude for living, to my mind, is the natural result of a confession of ignorance. And it is the seed from which grows inspired actions. I don't know exactly how climate change will play out in what remains of my lifetime, but I do know that it will play out most disastrously for those who cannot afford to cope with it, and that we will have many reenactments of what happened in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans during the flood that many called Hurricane Katrina. I don't know all the places this will happen, but I do know that many, many of them will happen in Bangladesh, in Vietnam, in China, in India, and along the coast of Africa. For those who are impoverished on the coastlines of the world, I do know that sea level rise will mean refugee status. And I now know that people in large cities and deserts like Karachi will be and are preemptively digging mass graves. I don't know who will set aside the money to help these people, and I don't know how our energy economy will transition from fossil fuels. But I do know we need hundreds of billions of dollars set aside to help them, and I know that we need to change our fossil fuel lifestyles. Those who deny climate change are not acknowledging ignorance. They are not loving anything. They are closing their eyes and their hearts out of tremendous fear for old livelihoods. They come in many forms, but all are putting their heads in the sand. But it's not just sand. It's sand along a beach at low tide. Still, the problem isn't so much them. It's the rest of us standing right next to them. Our heads may be out of the sand, and we may see the tide rising, but we are in despair, and we are paralyzed. So how do we act amidst uncertainty? How do we collectively pull our heads out of the sand? How do we open our eyes to inquire into mystery and ignorance? And once we have done that, how do we become grateful, open our bank accounts, our homes, to the environmental refugees that we expect? Well, I don't actually know. I, too, tend to despair, and I don't think that's going to end anytime soon. I just wish to learn to do it with more humor, as David Byrne and the Talking Heads have just done in this great song we just heard. I'm going to seminary as an agnostic because I yearn to know why exactly do certain people act courageously in a world full of mystery and uncertainty and often at great personal risk in inspiringly ethical ways. Because it does happen every day. I'm particularly wondering about why a village in the Netherlands called New Landa so courageously hid Jews during the Holocaust so quietly without even talking about it. They just automatically began doing it at exceptional personal risk. There are many other types of examples, yet often folks who do these things describe their actions in a double negative, as having acted when they simply could not not act. But what grounds such moral action? An article by Austin's ethicist Bill Greenway recently introduced me to the Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas. Levinas, a Holocaust survivor, characterized these types of actions as being passionately taken hostage by the face of the other through a type of love. This is the same love that Jews and Christians might call agape love. Seized by the suffering of another, we are compelled to act not out of some a priori dispassionate reality, but precisely the opposite. Our moral response takes priority and comes first as we grapple with the reality of the suffering before us. I know about the Karachi graves 
thanks to a direct action a few weeks ago that Tim DeChristopher and Corinna Gore staged so that we would know about it amidst the hell on earth that we've come to know here locally in the last month. Tim, a, a UU seminarian, and Corinna, the daughter of Al Gore, and a bunch of other ministers were arrested for lying in a ditch being dug for a fracking pipeline in Boston. And as Tim put it in an interview with Democracy Now! the next day, when he heard of the anticipatory mass graves in Karachi, quote, It just broke my heart in a whole new way. It just really weighed on me and wouldn't let go. You know, it was one of those things that just settled deeply into my heart, and I felt really compelled to take action. You may know Tim about, from the movie about him called Bitter 70. If you haven't seen that, please do. Tim did not ask the question, why act, why act morally? Because the question never even surfaced for him. And when we act like mad scientists, when we do not do it so rationally, we, we do not do it so rationally either. Often, we've already acted out of our passion and inspiration. Being taken hostage, it felt like we, we didn't have free will. Or we've hardened our hearts and not acted at all. It is only from this last place that the dispassionate question, why act morally, can arise. So I agree with Levinas about the hostage-taking that happens. Inspired moral action is indeed doing that which one cannot not do. If a confession of ignorance amidst mystery is the soul of religion, and that confession provokes deep gratitude, then simply living with your eyes open is at the heart of the religious experience. It really is simply a form of witnessing. So what are the preconditions of possibility for inspired moral action that Welch talks about? I believe they begin with acknowledging our inadequacy, such that when the sensation of gratitude for our existence arises in juxtaposition with the uncertainty of the universe, we will see Levinas' faces. And a few among us, spontaneously, passionately, and indeed rather irrationally, will make risky and responsible moral actions. As Jack Miles puts it, even the most reasonable among us must close the gap between indecision and decision, paralysis and action, not with knowledge, but with something else. I expect the darkness of ignorance to continue to surround me until my dying day. In a sense, that darkness is my enlightenment. True despair or paralysis and grief or fear is a severance from acknowledgement of mystery and uncertainty. It is a rejection of the gratitude and awe that such uncertainty provokes. Frequently, that rejection takes the form of certainties, of know-it-all fundamentalisms, built almost exclusively on fear, like those of some climate deniers. Fundamentalist certainties are the opposite of the kernels that make up the steps on our small mountains of knowledge. They are the opposite of inquiry and of love. They are much more like the dementors in Harry Potter, sucking all questions and with them all reality and love away from us. A huge problem with the way climate issues are discussed is indeed through their negativity, through their apocalyptic tones. Talking about it in apocalyptic tones doesn't help us address it. Hearing that it will make humans go extinct only creates an incredible amount of fear, despair, and more paralysis. Humans are like deer in the headlights in front of those headlines. And the denial these headlines produce is exactly the same denial that climate deniers know. David Sabel, the child psychologist, calls this ecophobia, the inability to psychologically process dread. And he doesn't think we should tell these stories to our kids. 
I am not interested in dread or apocalypse or hell at all on earth or anywhere else. Instead, let's acknowledge what we do and what we don't know. We don't know that humans will go extinct from climate change. In fact, it seems quite unlikely since we do know that the rich are very likely to adapt with little trouble. We do know that the poor are the ones who will bear the brunt and may experience massive devastations. So let's own up to it and take the attitude of David Byrne of the Talking Heads and find some joy amidst the doom on our road to nowhere. Instead of being paralyzed by grief, let's acknowledge our grief-stricken state while we come up with good ways to cope with changing our climate. Let us actively grieve the changing environment around us, which we see every day, and listen amidst our uncertainty refusing to deny what we do know. There are many good avenues available to us. You could begin here with our Green Sanctuary Committee. You could move from there and support the UU Young Adults for Climate Justice, organized by Ali Tharp, based here in Austin, and join Commit to Respond. Our youth, the ones who face the greatest burden amongst us for climate change, are also willing to take the greatest risks. They're on fire. If you're interested in affecting policy, get involved with the Citizens Climate Lobby. If you might like to take direct, peaceful actions, which are most often the most powerful, join Peaceful Uprising, Corinna Gore, and Tenda Christopher. But whatever you do, don't do it perfectly. And please do it in community. So I'll conclude with the question Sharon Welch so brilliantly asked us to consider. What improbable task with which unpredictable results Shall we, shall we together undertake today? And will you join me in paving the road to hell? Please join me as we extinguish our chalice and the words are printed in your order of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Encourage my soul and let us journey on. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.